All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of Goat Gab, a podcast about everything happening in the dairy goat industry. Everything. That's a pretty broad topic there, Cameron. Do you ever feel like you're alone in your passion for your dairy goat project? Yes. Or do your friends and family get that glazed over look in their eyes when they realize you're talking about goats again? Yes. Hi. Cameron, and I have a problem. No, I don't. I just have goats. Well, and I'm Laura Warren Hughes, and I have a problem too. Goats. <laughs> and we invite you to join us each week as we discuss the topics of interest to dairy goat breeders. We might delve into what's happening in the ADGA Association, the American Dairy Goat Association. We might touch on some herd management programs. Heck, we might just be talking about shows and top breeding programs, management, or, or how to prep for things. We're going to even try to bring in some historical perspectives as well. We're hoping to have industry-leading guests and a whole bunch of knowledge to share with the dairy goat community. So if you ever feel like you can't get enough information or goat talk, this is the podcast for you. So, Cameron, since this is our first week together... How about if you tell about yourself and your background in dairy goats, whatever you think people might want to know about you, and more importantly, why should they listen to us? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Laura. Um, so my name is Cameron Jedlowski. Grew up on a small dairy goat operation uh, in central Illinois. Um, we've raised on our farm, Kickapoo Valley Dairy Goats, we've raised everything from alpines to Pretty great La Manchas too. Now we have sables here, mainly focusing in the purebred French Alpines and the sable breed here. In addition to owning the uh, goat farm and running it with my dad, I'm also an Adga licensed judge. I've competed at some of the top shows and, and judged um, nationally and internationally here, um, and also just had a numerous amount of accolades here in the industry. Um, also on the on the flip side of that, we've also experienced the highs and lows of the dairy goat industry as well and, and kind of knowing uh, what's going to happen there. So that's a little bit about my background. Laura, do you want to talk a little bit about your side and what perspective you bring to this podcast? Well, absolutely. My name is Laura Warren Hughes. Um, I live in God's country, also known as Missouri, sometimes misery, depending on the time <laughs> of year. <laughs> I started with dairy goats way back in the 80s, so my kids would tell you I'm older in dirt sometimes. Um, started out with a Nubian weather named Moses. He lived in my garage for two years, but, you know, we all know that you can't just have one goat. So I purchased a Nubian doe kid to be his companion, and then kind of my interest grew from there. You know how that goes, right, Cameron? Uh, yeah, I think we've all had that dreaded Nubian every once in a while. Hey now, she was she was pretty nice. <laughs> um, My dreaded Nubian wasn't, so <laughs> <laughs> which is why you don't have them anymore. No, Thank not picking no. up Nubians. We both have Nubian friends that are great, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I love my Nubian friends, just like I love all of my dairy goat friends. Exactly. Well, after um 
after being involved in 4-H, I kind of got into it a little bit heavier. Um, I was an ADGA judge from 1988 until 1994. And I was young, so I'm really not older than dirt. Um, had the joy of working at Willow Run in Ohio for a short time in the early 90s. And then I got busy raising two-legged kids instead of four-legged kids. So took a break from dairy goats and got back into it in 2009. So uh, like Cameron, my focus is on French Alpines. Uh, we have a few Sonnens. I've had Nubians in the past. I've had La Manches in the past. Um, and like most people who have more than one breed, I've also had recorded grades too. So here um, goats. I work as a um, OB nurse. So my daughter, I have three daughters, and they show with me. We're we go to as many shows as we can in the summertime. Participate on a local, state, and national level when we can. Um, like Cameron, we do DHIR and also linear praise and. Um, just really enjoy the dairy goats. It's been a, it's been a wonderful life, and goat people are the best people in the world. I think. I, I, I cannot echo that sentiment enough. There, um, it's awesome to work in this industry, um, and and the people having been shown in multiple livestock industries. Um, I can truly say, dairy goat people are the best. Um, it's a great community a part of, and um, one goal of this podcast of ours is to really um, take some of that information that you know, um, larger breeders have or breeders that have ha found success and whatnot and kind of disseminate that to the masses um, and make sure that um, the entire industry is inclusive of everybody and not everything is just a secret. Would you agree with that, Laura? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think dairy goat people, as we've both said, are a breed apart and really kind and, and generous with their knowledge. But I also think sometimes you don't know maybe the questions to ask or, um, you know, you're intimidated to go up and talk to that nationally known breeder or somebody that you've seen do things you think they're not going to tell you. So maybe maybe you'll pick up something from our podcast that will help you become a better breeder down the road. Absolutely. And, and another thing that I had in mind here as I was running the tractor the other day on the farm was my biggest goal of this podcast is to say, uh, to, to have the feel of we're at a goat show and I can just go up and talk to someone like you're at their pens, looking at their goats, talking over their animals. That's my biggest goal um, and creating this kind of level of um, uh, comfort for all of all of the people in the dairy goat industry. So you can say, walk up to myself or Laura or one of our guests and say, hey, you know, I heard you on a podcast. I just want to introduce myself. So kind of get that level of familiarity of being at the pens with them. Um, so that's my biggest goal here today. I have lots of goals. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing, too, I think all of us uh, that typically go to many shows in the summer have really felt the lack of community with dairy goats uh, because we haven't had those shows. Facebook and chat rooms can only go so far. And I'm, I hope that this podcast kind of helps develop that family community sense a little bit more too that way. Absolutely. Absolutely there. And, I, and that's going to be ever crucial here, but um, looking at shifting gears as we go about Laura, what's happening on your farm here today, or maybe we can look at what you did over the weekend here. <laughs> well, I sold a goat over the weekend. <laughs> um, you know, 
I was sad because it was one of mine. My daughters were happy because, you know, they think we have too many goats. So <laughs> uh, most people agree with that. It was kind of fun, though. I sold it to somebody who has dairy goats, but not alpine. So this is this is a doe that will be their uh, foundation doe for their herd. And it's a doe kid. So that's always a little bit daunting, I think. There's a lot of there's a lot riding on that kid, too. So um that was kind of fun. My other thing this weekend, I was just really frustrated. My goats are not coming into heat. So breeding season <laughs> is going to be late for me this year. Huh. That's, that's really interesting because, um, you know, I've been talking to a lot of my friends in, in the dairy goat industry and whatnot. And um, some of them are in the same boat as you saying none of their goats are in heat. Um, so some of them don't even have their breeding plans developed yet. Uh, which I kind of make fun of because Ouch. we've had our breeding plans for, you know, um, 10 months. You know, we've had our breeding plans for 10 months or so. Um, and other people have bred their entire herds and, and we're in that um, bucket where we've bred most of our mature does already. That's That's got to feel kind of good and a little bit scary, isn't it? Nationals it, are late next year, Cameron. It, it is really scary. Um, it is scary. Uh, but we knew this year with doing a lot of artificial insemination in our herd with our breeding program, uh, we wanted to get started early. Uh, to be honest with everyone listening to the podcast, I, we're not the best at artificial insemination, um, especially when it comes to transcervical and whatnot, um, because it's so uh, timing driven. Uh, being good at artificial insemination is about the correct time here. And in the past, we have not been able to get the, the best timing due to our busy fall schedules. Um, so, so we knew we had to start early. So Cameron, um, how, so were you thinking when you did these earlier breedings that, oh, there's a good chance they're not going to take. So we went plenty of time to get this breeding, you know, taken care of. This is the buck that we want. Or how, how did you make those decisions? Generally, we will. Uh, when it comes to uh, our herd is, is we'll develop the breeding program or the breeding plan. And that's a loose plan. Everything is subject to change based on the day, um, based on how open we see them when we look at them um, and whatnot. So um, we developed kind of that plan loosely. And then we decided to get everything bred on natural heats first. That's our key for AI uh, when we do artificial insemination or AI, excuse me there. Um, so that's kind of our goal is to get them on their natural heats first and we wait for everyone to come in. But we still have a couple, I think we have one or two stragglers um, waiting to come in still, but they are not getting AI'd. So they get the, they get the live boys wait, waiting patiently yes. at home. Yes, the live boys are waiting patiently at home uh, while we still have some swimmers um, still frozen um, for some of the other girls. But what our goal is, is uh, currently we're at about 60% um, transcervical AI rates. Uh, when I talk about transcervical, that's going in through the vagina. Um, I'm, I'm kind of talking that out because this year we did some laparoscopic AI, which is a little different. Um, so and that we found some success as well, but um, we did both methods this year. So, because you and I had talked earlier this year, I knew yes. that you did some laparoscopic work. Yes. Tell me about your experience with that. And I know it's long enough now, Cameron, that you should have some does that did or did not return into heat. Yes. Yes. Great questions here. So, um, if you follow my farm page, Kickapoo Valley Dairy Goats, 
Um, I put up a whole series about the laparoscopic AI process, what that looks like from them um, getting knocked out to basically getting back up after their procedure there. Um, if you haven't checked that out, I highly encourage you to go check it out. Super um, straightforward and great with pictures to see the whole process and whatnot there. Um, but the laparoscopic AIs we did back in August, um, and that was a, an interesting process, and we chose to go that route um, due to our poor ability to find the correct timing, which I kind of mentioned earlier. But we also did it um, to try something different. Uh, we chose to do four goats here. Uh, it's been about 35 days now. Um, I can say that we're about 50% on those laparoscopic AIs with two of our goats taking and two of our goats not taking, and they both um, recycled. Uh, so they have one has been covered by la, um, live cover, and the other one uh, we are waiting to actually AI transcervically um, because uh, we missed the time in which she was so open during her last heat cycle. So um, that will be this weekend. Well, that's exciting. Fifty percent yes. is that about what you expected, or did um, you really not have any? I was hoping for seventy-five percent because that's what the uh, Borgo industry has, and that's kind of their industry standard with the vet we used. Um, they have that procedure um, figured out down to a science. The veterinarian we worked with out of Indiana uh, raises Borgoats, has done extensive research on that process with Borgoats, um, and he's got it about to 75%. Um, well, I would have liked 75%. I'm happy with the, the two that took. Um, what it will mean also, though, is we will be having January babies for the first time um and pretty much in 20 years let's keep our fingers crossed that the <laughs> farmer's almanac is not right and we're not going to have a rough winter this year yes that that, that would be great that's pretty exciting though anything you want to share about the experience would you do it again or uh i yeah so um i, w I would definitely do it again just because of the ease of the process and whatnot um, you can take, you know, as many animals there as you want. You can get it all done and out of the way. Um, if I had a group where I could do 10 of them at a time, as well as the, the price being where I, I could justify it. Yeah, totally. Um, I would totally do it again. Um, before I took there. Uh, yeah, I definitely do it again. It's especially on stuff that is lower quality semen because it would be uh, the process deposits the, the semen directly right into the um, closer to the uterine horn. Um, so it's, it's a lot easier there uh, to get a higher conception rate. Uh, just two of our does just missed the mark. So Very interesting. So did you choose semen um, that was really rare or just picked the semen that you wanted for the doe and, and did that factor into it at all? No, not for, not for us at all. So my girlfriend, my little backstory on myself, I'm, I'm dating a girl who has goats in the dairy goat industry. Um, and she's been doing this and she's in vet school. So um, you might hear her name. Catherine is her name come up once in a while during the podcast here. Um, but she convinced me to do it. And she previously had done this procedure with some of her goats um, and had used some older semen. The semen we chose to use wasn't as rare, um, per se, on the alpine side. We did one on the sable side that um, was a little rarer, and, and we have uh, that was one that actually settled. Um, so we're very excited about that breeding here, and we'll just have to see what happens in January. Very awesome. Cool. 
Well, we, um, I'm kind of lucky that I have a brother-in-law and two very good friends who are both, I consider them experts. I think, I think experts is a good way to, to describe oh, yeah. it. Definitely. Def- um, I would say that. In the small ruminant reproduction business. So I've been benefit benefiting from their expertise on AI and breeding issues and protocols and so forth for a long time. Um, I do like to AI my own does and I'm lucky in the fact that I usually have a pretty good eye on timing with them. Um, it's just whether or not I choose to be late for work or <laughs> goats come in on their own time, as we all know. So that gets yeah, a little challenging. And that has been something that I've admired about your breeding program, Laura, is your success with AI. Um, And do you want to kind of talk about, I guess, some of the factors that you contribute that success to, um, to your AI program there? Well, um, sometimes successful and sometimes not. You know, I, I try not to get bent out of shape by it. And I always have a decent backup. You know, if I can get an animal settled AI, it's like Christmas for me. I'm so excited and if it doesn't, it's okay. I don't try to put all my eggs in that basket. Um, in years past, I have done that. And then it gets a little scary. And then I'm uh, calling um, good friends and saying, um, do you have a buck that I can lease at the last minute? Because, you know, <laughs> Cameron's chuckling because I think that happened about six years ago with him. And I really lucked out. <laughs> I got to use like a fantastically amazing buck as a baby buck. And uh, got to use him before anybody else did, so that was kind of fun. But he came—he came back so crazy, which I don't blame Laura about. But he... <laughs> Cameron, my friend, he came to me crazy too. That that boy—he was—he was—he was a wild child. But man, did he throw beautiful daughters! That's the truth. I'll, I'll take a first place. Was she a three-year-old? First yeah. place, three-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Um, out of a crazy buck any day, but yeah, oh, anyway, yeah. back on the AI thing, um, you know, I, I really, really want to sync up does and AI them like all in, all in a bang. So that they're all going to kid on the same day. So I can, you know, just, that would just make life wonderful if you could schedule everything out like that. But my personal experience has not been very positive in syncing does for AI. And I'm not quite sure why, because as I said, I have some really great experts, kind of local who have a great protocol Mm -hmm. and they've done really well with other people. But I just, I don't know if it's just a difference in timing or a difference in the way the animal acts, but I just haven't had very good luck with that. And I, I know you've talked about how you've had different breeds throughout and have you ever tried that with a different breed i know your main breed is alpine but have you tried that either with your la manchas that you've had in the past your saunans um i've tried it with saunans and that i have never settled a saunan ai and i've probably tried five times okay i've tried with semen that people said was terrible and i've dropped three or four straws in i've done it with semen that people said is fantastic and it still didn't work so um my friend Levi tells me that Sonnens are a whole different story. They're just different from Alpines. Nubians, I've not had great luck with either. Um, the La Mancha, she was a short-lived project. Um, <laughs> I actually, it's kind of a funny story. I decided I wanted another breed. I thought La Mancha would be great. And this would have been 
probably in 1987, 1988, around there. And so a friend of mine um, that I showed goats with in Indiana, he decided that he would go with me to Harvey Considine's house in Uh, Wisconsin and buy a La Mancha. So we took off and it was in the winter, you know, maybe March. So we headed up 65 through Indiana, got up on I-80, I think it was, and hit one of the most horrible ice storms that I've ever driven through. And so my friend Joe was driving and it was a white knuckle, grit your teeth. Oh my gosh, I can't believe we're doing this. But neither one of us wanted to call it quits and say, this is not worth it. So we ended up making our way up to Wisconsin, made it to Harvey's house. It was late at night. Um, he put us up for the night. And uh, next morning, sat at Harvey Considine's kitchen table and had oatmeal with him. His wife made his oatmeal. <laughs> and I will always remember that. The La Mancha dough, uh, was an escape artist. And it came down to the point my dad said, either... Um, the La Mancha goes or all your goats go because I'm not having it get out anymore. And that was kind of the end of my La Mancha period. So um, sorry, a little rabbit hole story there, but it, no. was pretty, it was pretty cool to be able to say that, that uh, Harvey Considine made me oatmeal for breakfast. That was <laughs> I'm sure it's a special moment that uh, fellow dairy goat breeders that knew Harvey uh, would appreciate uh, because he had left quite an impact on the uh, community of dairy goats. So uh, yes, I appreciate did. I appreciate that story there. Uh, but going back on the La Mancha train, that's something that we never really figured out when we had La Manchas. Um, we had a stint in La Manchas probably from the late 90s all the way to the early 2010s. Uh, so probably about a 20-year stint. We'll call it a stint um, in La Manchas. And we could never really figure out AI very well um, and, and when it comes to the La Manchas, Alpines, we did pretty good. Sables were pretty middle of the road there. Uh, but the La Manchas just seemed tricky. But I know there are some La Mancha breeders that I hope to have on this podcast here um, that have had uh, phenomenal success with, with uh, AIs. And I think there's a difference in timing when it comes to breeds. Would you agree with that, Laura? I think so, too, Cameron. And I think, you know, you have to know your animals really well. I'm not saying that you don't. But I think that you you really need to be able to have that time to watch them and kind of see what they're doing. And um, one other thing that I know there are all kinds of protocols on, okay, if you see the doe standing by the buck at eight o'clock in the morning, but she's not there at, at six o'clock at night, you go out and breed her two hours after she quits flagging for the buck or there's all kinds of different protocols that work for different people. Um, Really what I've gone on is more about the cervical mucus consistency, not to be gross, but Hey, we're goat people. So, you know, know what that is. Um, And paying a lot of attention to that. The first AI class that I took was taught by Thurman Jaggers in Kentucky a long time ago. Thurman was one of the pioneers in dairy goat AI and reproduction. And uh, that's, that was the method that he taught spending, you know, really looking at, at that consistency and what you're seeing. You don't want it too stretchy and clear. You really want to pay attention to 
they're just starting to go out of heat and get them bred that way. So, um, but again, I think what I've seen in my Sonnens is that their, their cycle is a lot different than what my Alpines are. And again, I'm sure you see the same thing in Nubians and, and all the other different breeds as well. Which is really interesting because what we saw in our Sables is they're very similar to Alpines. And if you know um, anything about the Sable breed, Sables are derived genetically straight from the from the Sonnen. Uh, so that's really interesting point there you bring up. That's odd. I had no idea. Yeah, it's just the, the perks of growing Sables there. Um, one thing I, I guess the question I get a lot of is, have you ever done um you know ai with a, a virgin doe and i hear sometimes that's off the limits um sometimes some people say yeah go for it because it's great practice um have you ever done that and what's been your experience with that i personally have not now my brother-in-law stanton um ai'd a doe and then turned around and ai'd her doe kid and she she took and he said it was easy peasy i'm always a little bit nervous they're a little small of course i know that people ai fine with it but um i've not i have not done one um andrea forrest who's a lawancha breeder here in missouri and does a lot of ai work um told me at a class one time that really virgin does should be great to do because there's nothing they haven't had birth trauma or anything to mess anything up in there mm-hmm. that you ought to be able to see exactly what you need to that you should be able to get through the cervix easily and and so forth so i don't know yeah, no, we tried our first one here this this year um, and just wanted to see it as an experience. I think 2020, because of the lack of shows and the lack of um, things to do in normal life, uh, we decided to just be a little adventurous here and wanted to try that out. And so that's kind of part of the reason why we're AIing a lot of things. And there's there's a host of other reasons as well. But um, we tried that our first time this year and she just came back into heat, which we're not disappointed about it. But uh, one thing we kind of found it, it was kind of that easy peasy, um, you know, not a textbook AI breeding, um, but but very, very, very close to a textbook. So um, that's one thing that, you know, we're still trying to understand as well. And one thing we found when it comes to that is it's a lot easier to AI um, a dry yearling. That's a, that would be a virgin doe as compared to a kid. Um, so that was kind of our experience there. I could totally see that, how that could be. Now, did, has this kid cut, has she cycled through yet or? No, no, she has not. I'll be interested to hear that, how that works out for you. Yeah, def- we'll definitely have to follow up on that one there. So Cameron, I have an off the wall question for you. Yeah. How many tanks do you guys have? Uh, so we have one tank. Um, it's really funny you mentioned that because I, was looking to acquire a second tank, not not for our herd, for Kickapoo Valley's <laughs> herd, but for my girlfriend's herd, um, because she's that's a said, romantic gift, Cameron. I I know, I know, right? <laughs> um, just because she said she wanted a bigger tank, and I was like, okay, I get, yeah, Aww, I could look into that. that so is, that is true love. Oh, like, I wouldn't go that far, but <laughs> <laughs> whatever she asked for, I'll generally find on the internet cheaper than you can buy it. So. um but no we have one tank here um when we did some semen last year that was our first time we've ever found out that we might have a tank issue with the sheer amount of straws we can put into it Uh um because our processor of semen um which you know very well um is they gave you the straws the day after you collected and we had to store everything in our tank so 
I, to my knowledge, I think there's about 40 straws of sable semen actually in my girlfriend's tank, um, which is probably the reason why she thinks she needs a bigger tank. Well, the reason why I'm asking that is something that I, and, and I think all of us see around this time of year are people who are cleaning out their tanks, selling out semen, getting rid of semen. And I just wondered what kind of a management program you have. How do you know if it's time to dump something or keep it or? Um... That's, a, that's a really good question. Um, and, and something that I've kind of struggled with too is I think there, there's got to be, there's at least two factors, maybe three here. Uh, the first is, is it relevant still? So if you have a buck from the 70s, uh, he he might not be relevant, but he could also come in and fix some traits. So the first thing you've got to ask yourself is relevancy. Uh, we've used semen from the 80s. Uh, we just put some straws in you know, a couple weeks ago uh, that was collected like in 1988. So um, obviously we still find value in that buck. Um, so we consider him relevant still, but is the buck still relevant? Um, and secondly, do I need this or what will this improve in my herd is the second thing I look at. So when it comes to that is, okay, will this buck improve the traits that I want to improve? If I know my herd as a feet and legs issue, um, why would I want to keep a buck that consistently throws bad feet and legs in my herd? So that's, that's another thing is too. Um, and sometimes I just, we just end up junking semen and just throwing it out because there's no value on it. And we understand that, um, not a lot of people in the industry would use semen that myself or Laura would use just because we breed purebred alpines. Um, so that's kind of the second consideration there. Um, and the third thing, which we don't really consider as a big factor because we actually have a, a semen storage facility that's relatively close to our house is storage in our tank. Um, do we have enough room for it? Do we have enough, enough room with, for it? Um, and we've thrown straws out that um, you know we just don't have room for. So those are kind of our three considerations there that we look at. I, I agree with all of those points. Boy, I'll tell you though, Cameron, and you and I have kind of talked about this at different times, trying to decide if something is still relevant for your herd is difficult. Yes. Um, I've been around, you know, I've been around goats long enough that I think back to the glory days. Oh, I remember such and such doe. She was so beautiful. And then I start asking myself, uh-huh, she was beautiful in 1988. Would she still be beautiful in 2020? And my daughters always are like, mom, you can't breed on nostalgia all the time. You can't, you just can't. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I, I think that's, and I, I'm kind of laughing because we have a buck in our tank named Nostalgia right now. So, <laughs> so um there is kind of that nostalgic feeling as well, but um, ultimately at the end of the day, we, we want a little nostalgia. I, I feel like in our herd, because there are some traits that we would like to bring back from, from the old days. Um, we use some bucks that are, um, can be high caliber bucks or known for specific traits, such as some bucks that are really good at general appearance and throw great, really general appearance. We've used some bucks that are what we would call utter specialists. And we know um, what the lines are for that. So, um, I, I think the most important thing, and this is across all AI and, and whether you're throwing it out or keep it in the tank is you've got to know your goats. Um, and that's, that's the biggest thing. And you've got to know specifically what you want to improve on in order to be able to use it effectively. Um, using semen for just using semen, um, is, is not a good 
um, use of your resources. Um, I always, and this has been my focus the last couple of years on our herd is um, it's not just about making a breeding, it's about making the right breeding. So really putting that into perspective and saying, okay, can I do something better with the bucks in the tank I have? Or do I have a better option that's a live breeding that I know will improve upon the traits that I want to improve upon for this goat? I totally agree with that. You know, one thing that I try to tell people when they're new to dairy goats and especially new to AI, AI can be an amazing tool to bring some bloodlines in that you could never afford to bring in otherwise. Because, you know, face it, buying animals, top animals, you're going to have to drop some money on them. And it's, I think, buying a buck is the best, best investment that you can ever make in your herd. But having said that, sometimes it's just not in the cards to do it that year. Or you may have a specific bloodline that you want to bring in, but you'd like to cross it in with animals that you already have. AI is a great way to do that. Having said that, I think a concern with AI is that if you choose this buck for this doe and another buck for another doe and another buck for another doe, all of a sudden in your herd, and especially in a small herd like mine, you have your type all over the place if you're not careful. And then it makes it really difficult to bring a buck in that can do some good things for your herd again. Do you think that's a, 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 that's a fair that, that's thing a, to say? That's a very valid concern there. And I, I totally agree with you on that point there. Um, but one thing I, I will say, and I think people need to consider is what are their damn lines they're working with and how closely are they related to each other because if your, dam- if your lines of your does are, are fairly strong and consistent in certain traits, um, you're going to see some subtle differences from, bu- from animals that are out of different bucks. But I think you're going to have somewhat of a consistency of type um, and, and traits that you want as a breeder um, coming from your maternal lines as well. Uh, but that's an excellent point, and, and it's definitely uh, of some concern to, to breeders that might uh, choose to AI a lot. Well, and I also think another concern, too, it is so easy through AI to become a member of the Buck of the Month Club. Yes, we, I mean, and we kind of talked about this a little bit here. Um, you call it the, the Buck of the Month. I call it the Flavor of the Month Club. And, um, and sometimes that, that doesn't work for you um, because the lines just don't work that way. They just don't cross well. Um, I know when people have – some people have tried to use – um, American Alpine stuff on purebred Alpine stuff and, and it doesn't work or vice versa. Um, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. It just depends on what you're playing with. Totally. I agree with that. Absolutely. I agree yeah. with that. Yeah, but no here, I think um, just to kind of wrap it up here, I, I did tell Laura I had that story for her. Um, oh and, yeah. And, and it does go along with kind of us talking about AI and breeding season and whatnot here. Um, so we did AI goat uh, about last Sunday or so. Um, and, and, you know, we were all excited. It was a really cool breeding. And I think I shared it with Laura too. And, and you know, we were really excited about this breeding and whatnot. Um, and, you know, sometimes the goats are, they're great and everything works out and everything hunky dory. And then there's sometimes six days later, she comes in to heat again and you, kind of feel a little heartbroken and, and jaded about the situation. Uh, but that's just part of the trials and tribulations of it, of it here. So we AI to goat on Sunday and then Saturday. So two days ago now 
Um, she cycled again and we bred her naturally. Um, oh gosh, darn it. So, um, just some of the struggles there and, and it happens in every herd, whether it's natural breedings or AI breedings, um, sometimes goats hormones act a little funky. Um, and Laura, what do you tend to do in those situations there? Cry a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, after, after I give myself some time to grieve, oh, I can't believe that. I wasted that semen. I wasted that opportunity. I usually come to the decision, okay, I can try it again if I have the semen and I want to want to consider another straw or I'll just throw her in with a buck and let her let her be bred naturally and figure we'll try it again later. Um, you know, the thing, the thing that I kind of remind myself, hormones are tricky things. And if, if a doe is not cycling quite normally in that, you know, about every 21 day cycle, she's probably not my best candidate for AI. And do I really want to use another straw of that probably valuable semen to try to settle her again? Um, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but most likely they get one shot on AI, maybe a second one if they come in in, in 21 days. But if it's a, one of those six day deals, I throw them in with a buck. Yeah, maybe, I that, don't, maybe I'm not patient enough. <laughs> no, I, I think goats that tend to short cycle, and this has been my opinion and kind of what we've kind of developed is there's something, either something not happening properly with their body or whatnot and, and to waste or not waste, but to throw another straw in there just on the chance that she might cycle again in another three days or six days. Um, it's not worth the resources that you use in order to do that. Um, so that's, no. that's kind of my take on it for, for that situation. But uh, just a story to share here as we kind of wrap things up and, and kind of put a bow here on talking about uh, breeding and artificial insemination and, and tips and tricks and kind of as we kind of went on there. So, Laura, uh, I think that concludes the podcast. I, I, we did pretty good. I think we did all right. I'm really excited about this opportunity and so glad that everybody joined us. Um, we will... Our, I think our goal is to have a weekly podcast. And... Yeah, we're going to be talking about everything from management to pedigrees to anything and under the sun here. Um, and if you have concerns or questions or, or you want to uh, have an idea for a topic, just let us know here. Um, Laura, where can uh, they find you? Kind of your farm Facebook page? Um, my farm Facebook page. Um, we well, are. Laura, what is that page? It is www.maplewindcaprines.com Absolutely. And you can find me on my farm Facebook page, Kickapoo Valley Dairy Goats. Um, you can also find me on my farm website, uh, www.kickapoo, K-I-C-K-A-P-O-O, valleydairygoats.com. Um, should have my contact information on there. Would love to hear all your suggestions for topics um, as we want to answer your questions and be accessible to you guys as listeners. Absolutely. Have an awesome week, Cameron, and our listeners, you guys too. Thanks, Laura. Thank you, Cameron. Bye. Yeah, bye. <laughs>